This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We will do everything we can, and we will join everybody else in doing that. I hosted a meeting of all opposition party leaders yesterday, and we reached an agreement on what we will do next week, and we will continue working together with everyone who wants to prevent this uh, smash and grab against our democracy by the Prime Minister. And that was Jeremy Corbyn, the opposition leader over there in the UK, reacting to the news. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, excuse me, planning to suspend UK Parliament, getting the sign off from the Queen. What to make of all this? John Authors is here. He is senior editor of Bloomberg Markets, making us smarter about his homeland. He's here with us (laughs) in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right. So, John, I have to say, you know, we were sitting and watching this, you know, ignorant Americans, colonists that we are, looking back over and saying, wait, is that... You can do this? You can just say, like, listen, we're not going to do this. And the Queen says, cool, bro. You're good. That's broadly speaking. I mean, one of the arguments that's come out today is how can you possibly say this is unconstitutional? We don't have a constitution. Right. Which which is true. We do not have a written document. We have an immense um, accretion of uh, precedents and cases, but we don't actually have a constitution. And so, no, there is nothing written down that says that you can't do this. Now, the power for this rests with the monarch. That's why you had a, a, a convention, a, a delegation of uh, Conservative MPs going all the way up to the very north of Scotland, to Balmoral, where the Queen is at the moment, to get her to sign off on this. However, as anybody who's been watching the early seasons of The Crown will know, the fact that the monarch may have theoretically absolute power but only if she never actually uses it right uh, i mean you, you, there's a huge issue about what boris johnson is doing here but if she if if an, an elected prime minister had gone to her and said i want to do this and she had said no that would have been possibly an even bigger constitutional crisis so we are in a mess Wait, hang on one second, because we are in a mess around the world. We just have a headline crossing the Bloomberg uh, terminal. This is about Italy, and I just want to bring this to everyone's attention. Mm. Um, The Italian president uh, giving uh, Giuseppe Conte a mandate to form a government. Keep in mind, the Italian president, he is the only one with power to appoint the prime minister or dissolve parliament at this point. Another nation in crisis, if you will. But I just wanted to put that out, because that's another situation we're following. Um, That's a nation which seems to have got a little (laughs) bit more of a state stabilizer in place than than we do in Britain. Well, yeah. yeah. What? So that's it. Kind of assess the situation for us, John. What did today's movement by Boris Johnson, what did it do for Brexit? Did it move it forward? Did it move it backwards? What did it do? Okay. It moved, it's, it ups the stakes enormously uh, and it significantly increases the chances that if, that A, that we do, we, the British, do leave on Halloween, which is the current uh, mandated date, and that we would do so without a negotiated agreement with Europe. Those are both things that are plainly more likely than they were before. It also ups the stakes in terms of the risks for Boris Johnson and his government. However, this is not like uh, a recess to go and have uh, party conferences, the British according to conventions, which MPs vote on. 
This is the Prime Minister getting the sovereign, the monarch's power to say, no, Parliament is not going to be here. You do not have the choice to come in and say, hell no. Um, Which is a a very big deal, which very much ups the stakes and means that everything will come to a head probably next week with very, very difficult to predict um, consequences. I find it hard to see how the opponents of this and certainly a comfortable majority of MPs are against what Boris Johnson has just done and against leaving without a deal. I don't see how they can really fail to do the only logical thing, which is to make a vote of no confidence, vote to say, you've got to go now. Um, And they have to do that next week and they have to get their act together for it next week. That's really possible? And Again, likely? we don't have a constitution. Right. We, we, yes, it's possible. Yes. If, the, if the Speaker of the House, who is a Conservative, uh, I mean, he was originally elected as a Conservative. He's, he's my generation. He was, he was a tearaway, ultra-libertarian young Conservative back in the day, who is now probably to the left of centre of British politics and who has a problem with people like Boris Johnson. If he says it's OK for them to table a vote, uh, to, to have a vote of no confidence, then they'll have the vote of right. no confidence. And what is the, what if any momentum is there for that? And what if any momentum does Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition who we heard from at the top of this segment, yeah. what does, what do they have behind them at this point? Okay. Uh, in terms of the uh, momentum for Corbyn, there is almost none. Right. And this is a critical part of uh, Boris Johnson's calculation, I suspect, and also I suspect correct part of his calculation. Um, Corbyn's own position on Brexit is so equivocal. He, for, for many years, it's again, it's a bit like trade in, in the US. The, the far left and the far right of British politics tend to be anti-European. He has been thoroughly anti-European for much of his career right. and is therefore very uncomfortable trying to make opposition to Brexit his issue. So he has a position he doesn't have a credible position himself and he is a figure that who is too far from the uh, the the consensus from the norm for people to be able to uh, accept him as somebody who briefly takes power while we you know thrash out some further desperate deal with the europeans and then have another election and that that is a big problem beyond that the momentum within parliament if it can overcome this week is the natural person to lead such a movement is not capable of doing that. The momentum is plainly towards a really firm attempt to thwart Boris Johnson. Wow. Who would have thought? <laughs> no, it's just it's yeah. amazing. I know we're all going to be reading up on all this and paying very close attention uh, next week to the next leg of this story. John Authors, thank you so much. Senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, making us smarter about his homeland and all the drama over there. Interactive, of course, you know who they are, the home exercise startup. Well, they filed for an IPO after the closing bell last night in what will likely be among the year's biggest new offerings. Eric Gordon is professor of business over at the University of Michigan, usually based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. But uh, he found our way back to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Nice to have you back with us. It's nice to be here. So tell us about uh, this IPO. As Jason said, I think this is certainly in our world because we've been kind of talking about this company for a few years here, uh, long awaited uh, and eagerly anticipated its IPO. What do you think about it? So this one is perhaps better than some of the 
ones where we've talked about them where you wonder how they're ever going to make a profit. But we could talk for a minute about what's, what's better, maybe what's not better. One of the things that I think is better about this company is it's sticky. So the customers tend to stay customers. My, my friends, I don't do it. I'm a jump rope guy. But my, my friends who do it, they wouldn't do without it. So, so the customers are sticky, unlike, say, Blue Apron, where people got right. meals when the meals were cheap. As soon right. as the meals went up to full price, it's like, we're out of here. Here's the thing that you got to watch out for on the risk side is customer acquisition cost. So as a company gets bigger, so this is another one of those companies that today is making lots of losses. In fact, growing, growing quickly, the faster it grows, the bigger the losses. How do you grow out of that? You have to grow out of that because you get some kind of economy of scale. Something gets cheaper. It's cheaper to acquire new customers for some reason, word of mouth or something. That's where you worry about this company along with all the rest of them. What you worry about is, do they already have the easy to acquire, the right. cheap to acquire customers? Are the newer customers going to be right. more expensive? And to be fair, and this is one of the things Jason and I were talking about, because, you know, full transparency, they advertise on Bloomberg Air. We see a lot of advertising. There's been a big push, I feel like, over the last 12 months or so. And, and we each have a Peloton. And we, and we each have a Peloton. So just wanted to put that out there. Um, I don't know. So you were sitting down with the CEO. What question would you a- ask them? Because we've certainly spent some time with John Foley and talked a lot about the business. So he has, I think, two large issues. Um, one is customer acquisition costs. Ask them why to get the next million customers will be less expensive than to get the last million customers. Right. It could be more expensive. The second thing they have to work on is something they have disclosed, I think, pretty clearly in their disclosure document. It turns out that one of their high variable costs is the cost of licensing the music. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm a big watcher and listener of Bloomberg, and I, I've seen, uh, I've seen great. Their ads are great. Um, but there's that booming, there's that great music. Uh, and that music, Jason and I will both, I think, agree that we love hearing yeah. <laughs> the real music and played by musicians. It's not canon. So you're, you're the CEO or the company has to negotiate music licenses. And so far, they've actually kind of fallen over their own feet. They're actually in litigation right. over yeah. it, which, is, which is, is a little surprising. But they disclose that that is either their highest variable customer costs or one of their highest variable customer costs. So that's, I think, the other big challenge for them. The other thing I want to ask you as, as a student of IPOs, Eric, is this idea of even reading the S1, they're trying to be lots of different things at one time, a tech company, a content company, a hardware company, a software company. And I would imagine that that presents a challenge if you're going out and talking to investors, because investors, as you know, love to have something to compare it to. They love a comp. An investor wants to say they want an analogy. Yeah. You are the known something of this. So, uh, so this is from their S one. Uh, we have the opportunity to create one of the most innovative global technology platforms of our time. Okay, we're a global technology platform. Opportunity to create one of the most important interactive media companies. I mean, what have they left out? Space travel, right. virtual reality, <laughs> yeah. cure for cancer. So. Um, a lot of this sort of happy talk stuff that you put into your S1s, I think when you roadshow it, you have to give somebody 
as you said, an identifiable business model that equity analysts have a spreadsheet all set up and they can plug in the numbers and they can say, okay, we'll give it a multiple of this. Because we see these uh, uh, combined mongrel companies. What do we see? Uh, You know, on another day, we'd be doing a story about a company splitting into pieces because the equity analysts say you're worth more as two focused companies right. on something. Some of the I think this is a very focused company. I think it's a very good company, but I, I think they need to give them a model that the analysts can understand. Right. Well, I mean, we should also point out that this will be a very important IPO, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, I think, because the fitness industry needs a comp of its own. You know, there are a lot of companies that That's are waiting point. to sort right. of figure out what an investor will value, what the right multiples are, et cetera. Uh, always great to catch up with you and great to catch up with you in New York. Yeah, Eric Horton, professor out at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. He's based in Ann Arbor, here with us in New York City today. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, we were talking about one company going public in the fitness space. That's Peloton. Let's talk about one that's already public. That's Fitbit. We caught up with James Park. He is the CEO, the chairman and co-founder. He was here to tell us about some new products. We have a lot of exciting announcements today across software and service, as you mentioned, and also devices as well. And it's all to in, in support of our company's mission, which is to make everyone in the world healthier, and in particular to make health accessible to everybody. That's really important for us. And at the same time, we're also in the middle of transforming our company from being a purely devices company to, again, being more of a services and device company with more predictable recurring revenue streams. And premium uh, is a really important step in that transformation. So what we announced uh, today is a all-in-one comprehensive health service that takes data right from your wrist and turns it into actionable and personalized guidance and coaching that helps you get more active, eat better, and sleep better. It has programs, insights, content, uh, coaching, motivation in the form of health games, a health report that you can take to your doctor. So it's no longer just about, hey, you took this many steps. It's like, okay, you did this, so hey, how, here's something else Absolutely. you Absolutely. It's what's beyond the metrics. It's what's beyond the data. So how do we actually uh, coach you and guide you to the next step? And that's incredibly important. That's what we've been hearing that our users want next right. from Fitbit. Clearly, this is a response to the market. What did you specifically see? What did you specifically hear from your previous products that sort of got you to this? Well, it's, it's not so much from the market, but it's really from our customers because yeah. we, we collect a lot of data from our users. We also see you know, how well they're doing, you know, how much weight they're losing, how much sleep that we're getting. And we felt that focusing more on the software and services aspect of health was really the next step in getting our users to become healthier. I think we had taken uh, to the limit what we could do with just giving people metrics, and they really needed to understand what what to do with that data. Jason and I talk about this a lot. I do think that there is going to be a day where almost everybody has some kind of device tracking kind of their healthcare metrics at this point. You are, though, competing with some really big players, Apple, Samsung, among them. Um, You have a significant market share. They have a significant market share. How do you compete against those big players? First of all, we're the number two wearable brand in the world. Uh, People know the Fitbit brand as being really focused on health and fitness uh, rather than a hundred other things as well. And so the way we design our products and services reflects that. So for instance, our hardware devices have 
a lot of battery life, ranging from five days to over seven days. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to do things like sleep tracking. You can wear devices 24-7, and sleep is such an important part of your overall health. So for instance, in Versa 2, which we just announced, uh, there's a few new sleep features that we're launching, uh, including Sleep Score, uh, which tells you, with a simple number, how well you slept throughout the night. I got to tell uh, you, I love those kind yeah. of devices, because it really yeah. does give you a better night's sleep. Yeah, absolutely. We're trying to solve people's real problems. And I think if we stay focused on that, um, you know, the You're not competitive worried about element, the other guys? We are. We are. But, you know, first of all, we have to worry about our customers and make sure we're improving their health. Right. And I think... To that extent, if we can develop products and services that do that, I think the competitive element in some way takes care of itself. It goes without saying, you watch the stock price more closely than we do. Investors are skeptical. They've driven the, the price down. Uh, help us understand what they're saying, what you're saying back to them in terms of how this transformation and transition you know, may portend better revenue, better profits in the future. Yeah, I think investors right now have a wait, wait and see attitude, and you know, I, I think we, we acknowledge that and understand it. And we had some challenges earlier, you know, being very upfront with the launch of our Versa Light product. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, we learned a lot of lessons from that launch that we're going to carry forward. Um, but you know, we're continuing to execute on our transformation. For instance, with the launch of Premium, that we are hitting important milestones. The launch of Premium is going to accelerate our transformation into a business that has much more predictable revenue streams, and we're doing things that even accelerate that. So, for instance, uh, we announced a deal with the nation of Singapore that bundles right. together hardware and services. And from what I understand, you beat Apple to get that. Is that true? Uh, we can't talk about the competitive element, but you know, the, the government of Singapore is a very forward-looking uh, nation state, and you know, we're really happy to, to work with them mm -hmm. to try to improve the health of their citizens. And the next step as well is we're bundling together Versa 2 and Premium together at retail, and we're trying to transform again the idea of Fitbit not just as a hardware company, but as a solutions company that includes both hardware and software. It does feel like we're at this moment where, whether we're talking about streaming mm -hmm. services, whether we're talking about other elements of our lives where people are a little more comfortable paying up for quality. Who's the market? How big is it for that premium product? Yeah, so we did a lot of market research before launching our premium service. So the great thing is um, a lot of our users, 27 million active users, were willing to pay for a service. And actually, two-thirds of them were already paying for some type of health service or app to help them get more active, eat better, sleep better, et cetera. So um, the launch of premium at $10 a month or $79 a year is actually a lot of value for our users. Rather than paying $10 a month for three or four different apps, mm -hmm. uh, they can pay for one integrated service that's incredibly affordable. So what ultimately is the mix between services and hardware? Do you ultimately see that in terms of revenues and profitability, that it's three quarters is coming from services? Uh, you know, we can't, we can't talk to the mix right now, but we do expect uh, in 2020 for uh, premium and other non-device revenue to actually have a meaningful impact on our gross margins, and we want to rapidly increase the mix of our revenue that comes from premium over time. It is interesting about kind of what Wall Street's perception is right now about your company and, and this kind of explosion that we're seeing in the fitness space, you among them. But it's interesting, like Citigroup has said that your shares may be worth $2 a year from now. They say that you lack a mass appeal smartwatch with full two-way texting functionality such as an Apple Watch. And this is one of the two analysts that have a sell rating. There are folks, I think there's three buys, five holds, two sells. What do you say to the investment community that they're kind of missing about your picture and your story? Yeah, so I think the first thing is that actually we've grown uh, device shipments year over year. 
Uh, even our fitness tracker business, which people thought was a stagnant category, we grew tracker unit shipments 51% mm. year over year. Versa is an incredibly best-selling smartwatch, uh, not just in the U.S., so around the world. And we've grown our active user base steadily year over year. Uh, and it's right. sticky? You get a user and you, and you hold Yeah, so one of the stats is since the start of the company 12 years ago, 33% of our users are still actively using our devices. And if you think about it versus a typical uh, health and fitness product like a, you know, a treadmill or a gym membership, et cetera, Where they used to I think end up 33, clothes yeah, on, right? You know, that's measured in weeks of retention. <laughs> 33% of our users over 12 years are still with us, and I think that's incredibly sticky. And we have 27 million active users, and that's an incredible foundation on top of which to launch a premium service. So I thought that last point that he was making, that's James Parks. He's the CEO of Fitbit, Carol. The the point he was making about 33% of people that they had 12 years ago still have a product. I mean, I haven't had it for quite that long. I do have a Fitbit, I should say. Uh, James Parks, he fixed my Fitbit <laughs> after, did, after this segment, which I was very happy about. Um, it just but, required a reboot. But this is what's, I think, very crucial about these devices. You know, do you get a customer? Do you keep them for a long time? You don't have to pay up, right? We're just talking we about We were just talking about costs. this with Peloton. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. Exactly. So I think this is very key. Can, and that's how you build your base, right? If you can hold on to the existing ones and then add to it. I do want to point out on all of this news, we do have Fitbit shares up about 5% in today's uh, session, trading at $3. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see if this can give them a much needed boost. You talked a lot about transition transformation. Later in the week, we're going to have that full interview. It's going to be our Business Week Extra podcast. That's going to drop on Friday morning. You'll want to check that out because he talks a little bit about the Peloton IPO, the broader fitness market getting investors to understand what's going on with this mega trend. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the periodic table of elements is celebrating its 150th anniversary. And in keeping with that, this week's magazine is devoted to the table, its contents, and its evolving and growing significance uh, on our world. Smart lineup of stories, gorgeous portfolio of elements online, graphics, pictures, animations. Let's talk about the issue. Let's get into it. Jeremy Keene is an editor over at the magazine. He was the architect of this whole project. And as Carol said, it's gorgeous to look at online. A really great read as you're going away for the long Labor Day weekend. Joel Weber is the editor of the magazine. He joins us as well in our interactive broker studio. So, Joel, I want to start with you to just sort of set the table for us a little bit. Uh, early in the year, someone said, and I don't even think it was Jeremy, did you guys know that this is the 150th anniversary of the periodic table of elements? And I was like, why would we care about that? And I, I think so want to come to Jeremy and, <laughs> and, and others said... Actually, this is an incredibly amazing way that we can talk about business and, and things farther afield than business as well. And that became sort of this North Star that we set out to accomplish. And I am just widely, widely and deeply appreciative of Jeremy, who basically made this thing happen. And the beauty of it to me is literally 118 elements. There there will be more. Uh we talked about the history of it. Dmitry Mendeleev was the one who invented it 150 years ago. It has brought organization to chaos. One of the headlines we have for this is that this is the greatest org chart in business history. 
but it, truly, like, none of this content would have happened if it w- wasn't for Jeremy. And so, Jeremy, what was the spark for you that you said, we need to dedicate a whole issue, and I need to take multiple weeks of, and months of my life and devote it to this? What was that spark? Well, the opportunity to take something where you take a given square on it and you can do a story on mining, it's technology, it's marketing, it's the environment, it's finance. There's all these ways that you can go at any one thing and to have kind of a canvas like that and, and think about, you know, what what's important, what's interesting. And we, we put out a call for pitches early on. What, what element got more pitches than anything else? Helium. Helium. Yeah, not, what not what is the obsession with helium, do you think? Well, when the the image of sad party balloons, <laughs> you know, for for kids' birthday parties, really, I think, captured people's imaginations a little bit when that that party city item came out about them having a hard time. One finding. of your editors called it an existential crisis of party city. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they, it's really great, but it's serious, no, right? We're talking about um, a lack of helium, and right. it's not and, just about party balloons either, right? No. Well, yeah. So one of you know one of the other things that we did for this issue is we did these sort of beautiful photographs of high tech. Um, pieces of equipment, lasers, night vision, goggles that use a lot of different elements. And one of the ones that we did where helium is really important is MRI machines. So, you know, when you're talking about securing a supply of helium, it's diagnostics. Well, and the helium story, I think, is a great example in part because you've got some great characters woven into this mega narrative that is this issue. Tell us how you found sort of the right people through which to tell the stories, Jeremy. You know, with with a something like that, when, whenever you're talking about a mining story, it, it's often, well, we don't know if it's going to come under the ground yet. Um, and, you know, we got, the, we got an, a pitch from a writer named Paul Tullis who said, you know, there's some geological evidence that Tanzania might have the helium we want. But here's all these interesting things about how hard it is to recover helium generally, how hard it is in, in a country like Tanzania where, where, you know, the economies, the infrastructure is still growing. You don't necessarily know if you can get it from the ground right. to the market. Um, so, so, so we cover like 118 elements Sometimes we have big stories that touch on a couple. Other times it's you know a story devoted solely to, to one element. When you kind of think about the smorgasbord that we've developed here, what, what were the ones that you know are your prized pieces, oh, your favorites? You know what? I really developed like a f- some fondness for the rare earth elements, and you know partly it's because they were they were in the news a lot because of China and and the the question of China dominating supply but also sort of a cliche about them you know rare earth elements aren't really that rare and it's true but most of them are prevalent in the earth's crust but they're really hard to extract and they're they're hard to get them in sufficient concentrations to be economical. Um, you know, there's environmental questions. And China but, has um, done a lot to kind of flood the market, right? Or, or has done things. They control somewhere, I think, between about seventy and eighty yeah. percent of the market, and a lot of that has to do with just they're willing to do the brute force processing that's required to do it. And um, but it's sort of they are rare in a way. They might not be scarce, but they're rare. It's hard to right. to get them out. And once you have them, they're useful in magnets. They're useful in, all, you know, they're useful. They're strategically important for the military. They're important for solar panels and other clean tech. So, and, and to me, you know, the trade they figure into the trade war, right? Because it mm-hmm. seems like it's uh, um, a group of elements that might be able to effectively sort of be weaponized by controlling the the flow of them right and that also speaks to the greater uh, 
role that elements have sort of played in history, right? Yeah. Like tin having this amazing role. You want to talk about that one? Yeah, we did. We looked into the deep history at trade routes and how you know tin was sort of became the favorite alloy for bronze, and you get the Bronze Age and all these trade routes develop. Early on, you get kind of an early iteration of globalization, and now we're starting to learn more about it because you can use other elements to learn about, you know, where different sources where the tin the, the came world. from. Right? Yeah. Like the Bronze Age, you associate that with certain cultures, and right. yet they didn't have tin. So where'd the tin come from? Yeah. And that shows how trade figures into everything. Yeah. I've got to say though, because I've been playing with the periodic table, it's just fascinating. And what you folks did on the website, it's so interactive. There's so much information there. So I highly recommend that everybody goes to Bloomberg.com slash elements because it is just amazing. It is. And, and, and don't forget to interact with hole. the print version too. Yeah. It's yeah. old yeah. school yeah. technology. Yeah. You turn pages. Exactly. Also equally impressive. You can take that to the beach with you. Take all right. it all. Be all in on the elements this weekend. All platforms. All right. Jeremy Keene is an editor over at Bloomberg Business Week, the architect of the special elements issue. Joel Weber, he's the architect of it all, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, both here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Jason Studio. Jason is there an element for you? No. No. You're an Osbium girl. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Anne Maletti, Senior Portfolio Manager for Wells Fargo Asset Management. They oversee about $495 billion. I like to call it half a trillion. Mm -hmm. She joins us from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. And great to have you back with us. So what are we seeing out there? And one of the big questions I have for you is this idea of trying to synthesize what we're seeing from the consumer and what we're hearing from businesses because they seem to be divergent opinions. They certainly do. Um, businesses seem to have put a lot of their spending on hold, um, except for some technology spend. We're still seeing that be out in the marketplace software spending especially, but the consumer seems to be a little bit different. They seem to be drowning out a lot of the noise and continuing to spend, which is very healthy for the economy. Obviously, two-thirds of our economy is made up by the consumer, so the consumer staying strong is vital and is good to see. All right, but are they doing that at the expense of racking up more debt than they should be? You know, I don't think they are this time. Carol, it does feel different. The balance sheets of the consumer are stronger than they were in the last recession. Um, and, you know, people have, I think, hopefully learned a little bit from the last go around. There is more financing available that people haven't taken advantage of people's savings accounts are in better shape and their overall expenses are better and we're certainly sitting at lower unemployment rates which is also helping us i think 
And Anne, is that consistent sort of as we look across the country? Because I know one of the great perspectives you've brought to us before when we chatted with you is you're not, you know, dealing every day with the madness that we deal with, you know, walking up and down Park Avenue and dealing with a city that, you know, maybe isn't always quite in touch uh, with reality. You're in the real world, it feels like, uh, more and more, you know, your friends and neighbors, you know, as you look around the state there, uh, how does that feel? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, you guys, I love New York City. I love being in the hustle and bustle of New York City. But you're surrounded by people that are in the world of finance and certainly paid to pay attention every day to the news flow of what's going on in the finance world and with the economy and with the global economy. And I live in the Midwest, and it it does bring a different perspective. People in the Midwest aren't as focused, I would say, and, it, and it's not, it's not a, um, it, it's, not, it's just a, it's a different, it's a different perspective that they bring to the table. Right. They're, they're focused on their jobs, which are in different markets. Um, they're not all in the financial world. And there are a lot of them are in manufacturing, which has come back strong. So the unemployment right across the U.S. is under 4%. Mm-hmm. Here in Wisconsin, it's under 3%. Wow. Um, so we're, we've been in good shape, and people in Wisconsin feel pretty strong about how they are performing and at their jobs and the fact that unemployment has been really low here. Um, and so that's making them feel better. We've actually also started to see some wage growth, which took a long time to come back, but is coming back, which is good. Yeah, we just talked to an earlier story about uh, another bank getting uh, involved in terms of upping uh, its uh, minimum wage here. We were talking about Citibank a little bit earlier. What I want to know, Anne, is, all right, so the S&P 500 is up 15%. I'm just looking at the large cap, the broad universe, up 15%. Um, But it's definitely pulled back. It's down about 4.6% from its high in late July. What does that pullback say to you? Was it a valuation call? Was it all U.S.-China trade uh, nervousness? What is it? You know, I think it's not – we can't blame it all on – the U.S.-China um, negotiations or trade war, whatever we want to call it, I, I think clearly the global um, economies have slowed, slowed down, and, and we've seen that. Um, look across Europe, what we're seeing there, the numbers out of Germany and some other areas. And so that is putting more pressure and more concern on you know, what we're seeing here in the U.S. And so that as a portfolio manager, gives me some pause about what's coming and the impact that that, that will have on us. It certainly, you know, as you alluded to earlier, has an impact on the spending of CEOs and CFOs, right? They look across the pond and say, okay, well, if we're seeing the slowdown there, are we going to see it here? And maybe we should just ratchet back our spending a little bit. And so there's some pause going on because of that. So I think a a pullback was warranted. Um, And, you know, still being up, the amount that we're up this year, given all of the news flow that we hear every day is pretty remarkable. And so, Anne, as you look out over the next couple months, what are the key data points that you'll be looking at to tell you one way or the other whether the consumer is starting to feel some of that worry that we ascribe to companies? 
I think it has to go back to some of those key things. What does the employment data mm-hmm. continue to show? Um, also, what happens with rates? Are you know is the Fed continuing to lower rates that will should help support the financial markets a little bit, but also that helps lower mortgage rates. You should see some more refinancings going on with that. Fuel prices have been very stable. They're the lowest in three years over this Labor Day weekend, so that has also been beneficial for um, all of the consumers. So those things are key, but if you start to see employment data weaken, that's going to be, I think, a trigger point that does spook um, certainly the consumers. Also, if the if the tariffs do start to bleed into the prices right. of everyday consumer goods, I think that will put a little bit more pressure on consumers, especially the lower to middle end consumers, which are really the ones that are holding up the economy right now. All right. Great stuff. Ann Maletti, Senior Portfolio Manager, Wells Fargo Asset Management. They oversee about $495 billion. She joined us on the phone from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.